Talk Description to Me with Christine Malik and J.J. Hunt. Hi, I'm Christine Malik. And I'm J.J. Hunt. This is Talk Description to Me, where the visuals of current events and the world around us get hashed out in description-rich conversations. Welcome to episode two of our talk about Star Wars. And spoiler alert, if you are going to watch Obi-Wan and you haven't yet, you might want to press pause and wait because there will be, yeah, spoiler alerts. I'm giving spoiler alerts right now. <laughs> uh, and so I watched the first episode yesterday. And so I have some specific questions that uh, we're going to, yeah, we're going to have a ranging conversation because we've never actually done this where, you know, one episode of something new and it's audio described. And so then we can dive deeper. So I'm pretty excited because I think this is going to be a unique way to have a conversation. Um, but where we left off on our first talk about Star Wars was about ships and both of us acknowledging that uh, science fiction in general, the real world, but especially Star Wars, riddled with groovy ships, interesting spaceships. And so one of the first scenes, I think, JJ, in the first episode is the Inquisitor ship sort of uh, landing and looking quite menacing. So shall we start with some talk about the ships? Yeah, let's talk about ships. So that's a great scene, by the way. That was so beautifully shot with this uh, this black Inquisitor ship. And I don't think it's been named yet, this tran Inquisitor transport ship. It it. it it flies over Moss Eisley, which is, uh, you know, a city that's well explored in, uh, in the Book of Boba Fett, uh, a desert city on Tatooine. And this black ship, um, it's got a sharp kind of pronged nose and it flies very slowly over Main Street. And it looks so predatory as it cruises right along. I heard one uh, breakdown video, they talked about the fact that the pronged nose looks almost like the, the open mouth of Pac-Man, ready to gobble up the people who are standing on the street below looking up. Such a great kind of opening uh, to to that series and, 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 you know, arrival on Tatooine. But let's talk ships in general in the Star Wars universe. Um, which one do you want to talk about first? X-Wing, the Millennium Falcon. What's, what's, what's your oh. favorite ship, Chris? Mm, let's go for the Millennium Falcon. It's so storied. It's class. The, the Millennium Falcon really is the, the number one ship in this series. So it's a big, like it's a disc, like a pie plate shaped disc. Um, and it's got a pronged nose at front. So two kind of pointy parts that come out the front. Um, and it's got one little side wing with a with a with a small cage. It kind of looks like the kind of cage you would put on the snout of a dog um, to keep them from from biting or barking. Um, and that's kind of off to the side. That's actually the cockpit. So the cockpit isn't front and center. Huh. The cockpit's not on top. The cockpit's off to the side, which is kind of interesting. So that's the general shape of the ship. And what's amazing about the the Millennium Falcon is that it really does look like a ship that has been 
pieced together. There were bits stuck all over it. There's like a radar dish over here, and then there's the gunner's turret that's sticking out over here. And all of the panels on the ship are different. They're all individually rendered. So it really does look kind of like a patchwork. Like, oh, at some point there's a blaster fire over here. So get another sheet of steel and, you know, bolt it on over here. And, ah, uh, you know, with the, the, this blue on this part of the ship, well, I think we can find one from a junkyard and stick it on over here. So it's kind of got that real hodgepodge look to it. It's gray and, and steel with some rusty parts. It's got a few kind of red markings here and there, but it's not like super organized. It looks like um, a bit of a piecemeal ship, uh, which is part of its charm. And then when it takes off, it's again got this disc shape. And so right along the edge of the disc uh, at the back is where the lights are, the engine lights are. So when it goes and it just speeds off, those glow blue and it zips forward from there. That's kind of the way it travels. How about the X-Wing? So the X-Wing um, is, a, is a longer ship. It's kind of got more like the, uh, I used to love funny cars when I was a kid. I don't know why it was. So like this rocket cars that would like try and break land speed records by zipping across the desert. And that's kind of the body of the X-Wing. Really, really elongated nose with like just a, 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 a one kind of pilot spot right back and center on the nose. So the pilot is, is behind a sheet of, you know, sheet of glass essentially and looking out like a fighter pilot in a fighter airplane. It's, that's the, the basic design. And then there's, there's a spot for, um, for a droid to be sitting uh, exposed to the elements behind the pilot seat. And then what makes it an X-Wing is the, the traditional wings that would be if this was just an airplane and had wings sticking out the side. Those wings sticking out the side split open. And when both sides split open, you now have an X shape um, uh, across the back of the ship. There's no tail like on an airplane, so you don't have the tail with a fin stipping, sticking up the back. Um, you just have the nose, this long nose, the X-shaped wings when they open up. And then uh, on both the top and bottom of the X-wing are long, like needle-like blasters um, uh, and just kind of sitting back and above the, the, the pilot's seat are kind of big engines. So this ship is very much based on a fighter jet model, um, uh, and that's that's the way it operates. It it twists and turns. It gets into dogfights. That's the way the X-wing operates. Whereas the Millennium Falcon is a bit is a bigger ship, um, so it can it is very skilled and and maneuverable. But it's mostly about speed. The X-wing is very 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 nimble. I mean, truthfully, they make the Millennium Falcon pretty nimble too. And some of those great battle scenes, the Millennium Falcon is twisting and turning and using the, the flat edge of its pie shape to, to flip back and forth. But the X-Wing is really like, it gets into the dogfights. That's what it's all about. The droid is not in the cockpit? No, the droid's actually outside. So it's up and behind and exposed. So when that droid is uh, is seated in that spot, the head, R2-D2, it's usually a, an R2 unit, um, is just this this round droid head in space. Oh. Um, yeah, it doesn't it doesn't have uh it doesn't have a compartment around it for the most part. Oh. 
Uh, other ships? So, I mean, uh, there's so many. So there's like the Imperial class Star Destroyer. Um, these are where you're getting into the really massive ships. You know, the classic Star Wars opening where there's the, the camera, so to speak, um, zips past the, the ship or, or slowly passes the ship or the ship slowly passes the camera. So you get to run the entire length of one of these massive ships and it gives you a sense of scale. It gives you a sense of just how vast and huge these things are. And the destroyers are actually based on um, Navy ships, naval destroyers, aircraft carriers. They're huge. And they're kind of blade-shaped, so they come to a very fine point. But again, they're flat, like a knife blade. And then they're kind of stacked up on top. So there are different tiers, different levels on top. And then there's a big array. So it really does look like a like a naval destroyer, but again, with a with a with more of a blade shape, a pointed blade shape, and the the patchwork that I described in the Millennium Falcon, it, there is some of that. It's not it's not piecemeal, but in order to to demonstrate that this thing has been built, it's not just a monolith. It has been built over time. You do when you're getting close in those initial those opening shots from uh, from any one of the movies where they slowly pan by one of these ships you do get to see the various panels, the various components that are stuck to the side and that, that make up the hull. And that helps add to your understanding of how big this thing is because it's one piece after another piece after another piece. And you go past one, uh, you know, uh, array of um, weapons and then you go past uh, an array of, you know, what look like satellite dishes, one after the other after the other, because these destroyers are huge. One more. Let's talk about uh, the Mandalorian ships because that that Mandalorian uh, was a great show, and uh, and the ships were you know people really get invested in these ships, and so for most of the uh, the Mandalorian, the he had the Razor Crest, and the Razor Crest was a great kind of. Uh, bulky ship that was a kind of i mean he was using it as a transport and he would uh you know hold his um his bounties in the in this ship and it was it kind of got a bulky midsection it's a little bit capsule like in its main body with mm-hmm. the cockpit uh high and up front with blaster cannons on either side um and then up and high and behind are two big engine pods um and again, very patchwork, very kind of, this is a beat up ship. It's an older ship, uh, intentionally older. Like they, he needs it to be older because it runs under radars and whatnot. Um, and it, 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 again, piecemeal, dark gray patchwork steel, uh, rough and ready and could bounce off of any surface. It could, you know, hit, uh, uh you know, bounce off an asteroid and just keep flying. That was the idea. <laughs> Until it got completely destroyed. And so then the Mandalorian needed a new ship and he got uh, what he's been working toward and building. And we haven't really seen an action yet is, uh, is a ship that's based on, I think it was an N1 Naboo Starfighter. I think I've got that right. 
So this, we talked about this, the, the, the Nabu design in the last episode, very, very, very sleek and kind of working on like 1950s, uh, cruisers, like 1950s car design. Cause these were part of the prequel series. Mm-hmm. Very, very, very sleek. This one's like got a hammerhead shark look to the front. Mm-hmm. So instead of the rocket engines being up in the back, these ones are right forward with a, with a, like a cross piece. So that's gives it the hammerhead shark look. And then the, and then the engine pods taper into these very, very, very fine points. And so it takes this design from the prequels, but they were so sleek and sexy and perfect in the prequels. People got, it didn't sit well with everyone because they didn't have that kind of piece together rustic thing that people love about Star Wars. And so what they did was they took one of these ships and they said, what if they, what if, you know, uh, the Mandalorian with help from some friends pieces this ship together so now you have the best of both worlds you've got this really cool very sleek retro hammerhead design but it's cobbled together and so you've got panels of steel panels of like that kind of thing and it has the the place for the droid in the back you know just behind and above the pilot's uh the pilot's seat but this time they did put a little dome on top of it and that's where Grogu can sit. So instead of a droid sitting there, his co-pilot is his little baby Yoda is Grogu. So super cute. And Grogu now sits inside this, this pod um, instead of R2-D2. That's, that's the, the Nabu N1 Mandalorian starfighter or whatever they're going to call it. I don't think it's got a name yet either. <laughs> Watching Obi-Wan... Having, you know, participated in our first episode on Star Wars, I was really heightened to the patchwork quality. And so I'm thinking of examples on Tatooine, like, uh, they're cutting up whale meat, which is like a really 19th century earth, you know, grubby thing next to droids and spaceships or, uh, you know, deserts and riding on animals, but then there's right next to this high tech. And so it made me listening, you know, participating in our episode last time really sensitized me to this. So I'm interested in talking more about the worlds and how they're made, because uh, the the sort of grubbiness has become definitely part of the charm that I don't, I did definitely didn't appreciate until you and I talked about it uh, a few weeks ago. So the way that the, the ships are, because to me, spaceship means sleek, like Star yeah. Trek, you know, or Apollo missions or something. And uh, that's not what's happening here. So you get the sort of grubby, low tech, like people selling pottery in a, yeah. you know, in an open market while a spaceship is landing next to them. <laughs> and that, 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 paradox which maybe it's paradox maybe it isn't but it's so well done and so i it seems that in obi-wan they're continuing that aesthetic yeah they they absolutely are and doing a brilliant job of it too um so again on on Tatooine, uh, you've got these this uh, this you know streetscape that is uh, because it's a desert planet. A lot of the buildings are um, are adobe buildings, very sand colored. Everything is sand colored and 
like sandy. So the same tan color of the str- of the sandy streets is the the color of the adobe buildings with the, which have rounded doorways and domed roofs um or domed rooftops and whatnot it, very classic desert construction and yeah and then you've got like droids who are also super sandy and uh, pieced <laughs> together right like everything on the planet the awnings the vendors wears the clothing everything is covered in sand um and what I found really interesting about uh, arriving on Tatooine is because those of us who have watched the Book of Boba Fett really know Tatooine now and have spent a lot of time in Mos Eisley, this this uh, this city. There was a sense of visual familiarity, so it was. I launched right into the story. I launched, I cared about the city when this ship, you know, Mm. this inquisitor ship is landing in the street. I'm already caring about it because I know it. I feel comfortable there. I feel familiar and it looks real. It doesn't look like some space age. Ooh, it looks tangible. It's a desert city. It's a desert town. And I know these people because I've seen them in the book of Boba Fett and if not them, their ancestors, you know, like it, right. I just felt really, um, really at home there. But the other thing that's interesting is this, it carried over this kind of patchwork piecemeal thing carried over even into Alderaan. So Alderaan, this is where young Leia is growing up as a princess, having been adopted by uh, Bail Organa, played by Jimmy Smits. And it's in some ways, it's a very sharp contrast to Tatooine. So, um, you know, instead of being a desert like Tatooine, Alderaan is uh, our first shot of is is of this island with clear waters in the foreground, snow capped mountains in the background, and this city sized royal palace in between. And the palace is a series of tall white and silver towers. Everything's got smooth edges and rounded tips. And very sleek, like probably as sleek as anything we've seen in Star Wars, really slick and sleek and everything is in, um, in silvers and whites. It's very, very clean. Lots of nature around again. You've got the, we've, you've got the, the waters and the, and the mountains and there are even, there are some forest scenes. And yet, when you get right in close, when you've got a close up or you're on one of the landing docks or you're in an exterior shot, you can still see that the towers are not seamless monoliths. The paneling on the exterior is still discernible. There are some signs of aging in the structures. Oh. Some of the exterior panels are slightly imperfect and, oh. and they have minor color differences, which you know oh. tell you that some of those panels have been replaced over time. It doesn't look like the Mandalorian's Razor Crest or the uh, the Millennium Falcon, which is like totally just patchwork. But there's subtle little indications that these are still structures that someone had to build. These aren't just digitally rendered things. And again, it's not that no one has ever done this before. Like this kind, this attention to detail is present in other series, um, mm-hmm. uh, including in Star Trek. By the way, they also do this uh, in the in the most recent versions of the Enterprise. You can see this paneling with the tiny little bolt marks along the sides. Mm. Um, but in this series, they do it very, very, very well. Now I'm not to episode two yet, but can we talk about the urban landscape? 
Yeah, Dayu. So Dayu is this kind of seedy urban, I don't know if if the whole planet, sometimes in in sci-fi, the whole planet gets described in the same way. So I don't know if it's like the whole planet is like this or if it's just the city, but Dayu is like this Hong Kong Blade Runner vibe and really drawing quite expressly from both of those visuals. So a lot of tall, tall towers packed in tight, just like Hong Kong Um, and the Blade Runner vibe. So it's filmed at night of course it's always night in cities like this you never in a movie see one of these cities like on a beautiful sunny day with a breeze going it's always night and a little bit rainy and a little bit grime everything's grimy there's some smog or mist that's hanging in the air um in fact when the starliner comes in when obi-wan flies into the city on a starliner um they has to fly right through this blanket of kind of greenish smog that hangs in the air really gross um, and then you get down into the streets and, uh, you know, very, very tall buildings and vertical neon signs on the sides of all of the buildings. Again, very Hong Kong, m- more so than even Shanghai. Like it's it's seedy and dark and almost all of the light that's in this city is provided by the neon signs that are on the outsides of buildings. So that means that there's always a greenish glow or a reddish glow or a yellow glow. It's never just a, a you know a straight street light over you know lighting up a square. It's always these colors, these tinted lights that are coming um, from the sides of buildings, not directly overhead. Really has an impact on the way that city is is visually presented to us. No, our podcast is not a place for discussing the nuances of how audio description is done. But having just watched episode one, there was a couple of things that stuck out for me, uh, because you and I had talked about this a few weeks ago. Um, and they were kind of about how characters are described and identified. So mm-hmm. the bounty hunter, the female bounty hunter, I was pretty sure I remembered that she was an African-American woman, a black woman, but the description didn't identify that. And then later there was instances where uh, there were aliens and the describer used the pronoun she, which I Hmm. liked, but I wasn't sure if it was based on anything or just a decision not to use the pronoun he, because that's what people default to. And so it, I, I don't know if I even have a, description related question here but it just made me think about the difference in the ways that audio description gets written and i felt like i was kind of watching a bit of evolution of audio description writing because there were some word choices that were uh to me um unusual were you checking out the audio description from a describer's point of view and noticing any of that stuff too yeah yeah, I didn't watch the entire thing with audio description. I watched I watched it first without, but then when I was writing my notes, I went back and forth and watched certain scenes with audio description, in part because I wanted to make sure I was aligning my description with the way people would have been hearing it if they were using AD uh, as they were watching it. Um, but also because I'm really curious. I wanted to know how it was being yeah. written and what was what was working. And yeah, I noticed a few of those things too. Um the, the sometimes I, I I the the language of the describer sounded a little bit like the language of the Jedi, um, a little bit formal and a little bit um, a, oh. a, a little bit flowery. I'm not sure if that was a choice to be oh. um, in line with the language of the Jedi uh, or the or the speech patterns of the Jedi. Um, uh, it's funny I hadn't noticed that they didn't mention skin tone with I think it's Reva the third yes, sister. That's, that's who you're, right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
And that's important. I mean, it's important for a number of reasons. Um, obviously, we've talked about the need to be describing skin tone and and so forth uh, to make sure that that, those, that representation is passed along to description users. It's also potentially very important because our very first scene, the very first scene of the whole series after the recap, we start on Coruscant at night and we pull back from the city, which is, you know, we see the lights of the city flickering away and we pull back from there onto a terrace where these younglings are practicing martial arts with a robed mm-hmm. Jedi. Mm-hmm. And the very first person that gets any screen time, the very first person that's on screen is one of these younglings. And one of these, and this youngling is a young black girl, a young woman <gasps> of color. Oh. And it's what we know is that the Inquisitors are um, Force-sensitive or former Jedi who have been flipped to the dark side. And so Ooh. it's possible that this is absolutely nothing. It's possible uh-huh. that this uh-huh. is just some kid of color who is, uh, you know, n- not an extra, but has this small role in this show, and it has nothing to do with Riva. But it's possible, given the uh, the similar skin tone, given the similar body build, like, you know, body shape, and the fact that this is the very first person who is on screen in this series, uh-huh. it's possible that that's Riva, and we're going to get in future episodes some kind of flashback to her being um, not protected by what she might right. feel as being not right, protected right, by right, the right, Jedi, right. and that has led her down this path. So to not uh, describe skin tone in that moment ha- might uh, might become a problem. Interesting you mentioned that, that some of the... Um, Aliens are described as she um, using uh, that pronoun. That's interesting. I wonder if in those moments they're making, the describer is making a judgment call based on the scene and Mm. and the dynamic, or it's quite possible that those describers are getting um, scripts and notes from, you know, either Disney or the production company Ah. that tells them. Because again, this is like the, the lore on these things Star Wars is designed such that every the race of every character is known, the backstory is known, some of these characters are named, even though they're oh, only in a shot for a second. So of it's course. possible that there's some kind okay, of okay. information that's been passed to the describer. I honestly don't know. I'm going on a tiny tangent here, but I can't help it. I've been getting extra sensitized to describers using a first name or a last name. And Uh, when what I'm noticing, and I don't think it's just my feminist lens, women characters are more likely to be referred to by the describer with their first name, (laughs) male characters are more likely to be referred to by the describer with their last name. And I've tried to be objective as I can. And I don't think it has to do with how the other characters talk about them. So yeah, just yeah, that, so that's an interesting one too, and that has been a default. I give, I'm, I certainly know in especially early days that that was probably a pattern that I fell into. There's also um, uh, often uh, good guys are first name, bad guys are last name. <gasps> Ooh, um, that Ooh. that often gets. Yeah, I never noticed that. Yeah, okay. and sometimes that's an intentional choice. There, there's also some idea that Riva is being called Riva not the third sister by the other characters within the piece um, because they don't have as much, perhaps they don't have as much respect for her. Perhaps she's some kind of foundling Mm -hmm. or something Mm -hmm, like that. mm -hmm, And mm -hmm, that's mm -hmm. one of their ways of 
being dismissive of her. I think She's they not call her right. third sister. They do. They mention it a few times, but yeah. they also call her Reva quite a lot. It's I yeah. mean, we're only two episodes yeah, yeah. in yeah. at this point. Who but these are this is how like juicy every little detail yes. is. Yes. Visual, <laughs> audio, it doesn't matter. Yeah. We're like hanging on everything, yeah. right? So what did you, watching it, what kinds of stuff did you see that you thought, oh man, the describer just doesn't have time to describe that groovy thing? Yeah, there's a lot. And like, it's such a, t- describing can be so tough because you're weighing a lot of different things. And, the, you know, describers, when they're trying to do something like a Star Wars, where everything has meaning, it is, it's it's impossible. You can't get it all in. in no pressure, eh? Star oh, Wars. No, like, it's, it's only Star <laughs> You're Wars. You're going to be under a microscope, right? Oh, my God. I really yeah. feel for them. And I What a nightmare. Did, <laughs> totally. And they did a great job. Like, there's lots of elements that, that they. I think they did brilliantly. Yeah, things that they yeah, picked I, up on that I, yeah. I was really impressed by. But in-line description in general just is not particularly well designed to do things like describe worlds, um, to break down moments, or to find all those little hidden details and cameos, right? Mm -hmm. So there's some elements of the cinematography, I think, that are worth talking about. There's some elements of like those, those little cameos and those little details we can get into. But like in terms of the cinematography, for example, some of the things that the, that the description couldn't possibly, I mean, that's, I shouldn't say that. It's not that they can't convey it. They can and do. The describers did a good job of conveying as best they can within the constraints of inline description. But, you know, we got this opportunity. Let's break it down a little bit more. So that that first shot that we, you know, that of, uh, on Coruscant that we talked about, where we pull back from the city at night onto the terrace, past the, uh, the, the younglings who are practicing martial arts with a, a robed Jedi. It's a very smooth tracking shot, as calm and tranquil as the music is, as we pull away from the city over this terrace, past these younglings, very smooth, visually very smooth. And then the clone troopers arrive and they open fire and everything changes. And what happens is the camera reveals itself to be handheld or at least simulating handheld camera. So our point of view, our field of view really starts to shake. It moves around a little bit. We become, instead of being smooth camera tracking, we suddenly start to shake and we move around. And this makes sighted viewers really anxious and it puts Mm -hmm. us right in the scene. And the younglings are kind of quickly hide behind the Jedi, but the staging of this means they're hiding behind the Jedi toward us. So these younglings gather all around us. And it gives us the point of view of either being one of the younglings or someone who is meant to protect them because they've all gathered around in front Ah. of us. Either way, it's super engaging, right? Mm -hmm. It it puts us right in the scene. Then the Jedi leads us into the corridor. And from there, kind of the rest of this battle and attempted escape, it appears to be a single unbroken shot. And so visually, this adds to the the urgency. It makes us feel like we're one of the kids trying to escape in real time. It's also kind of like... Um, uh, like war footage. If you've got a, a journalist who's embedded in a battle Ooh. situation, it's very much like this. There's battle going on all around and the journalist is trying to film whatever they can. It's got that kind of feel to it. So it's really, really effective. In fact, so effective that even though there's no violence toward the children that's depicted on screen, we don't see mm. any of these kids get hurt. 
Disney actually released a content warning because this episode was being released within days of the most recent school shooting in Texas. Oh, God. And they were worried that the this attack on a school, attack on school kids... It was so effectively shot that people yeah, would yeah. F- would connect those two things, Ooh. and uh, and yeah, so they released a content warning about that in advance. Oh my gosh! One of the things I thought the describer did well in the first episode was the um, the animal that Obi Wan rides and how its legs are jointed in an unusual way. I really enjoyed that yes. the describer picked up picked up on that and kept 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 reiterating it just because the audience kept seeing it and i'm sure you go oh that's cool yeah that was really i think this didn't you talk about like the uh, the front legs hinged out and and the back legs hinged the opposite direction yes. it, it mentioned that yeah, yeah yeah and it's interesting that you point out that you heard it mentioned over and over again because this is another brilliant thing that they did that the cinematographers did and then the describers picked up on and conveyed in uh, you know really well so um the fact is obi-wan in this series the last time we saw obi-wan he was like one of the world's greatest jedis um a leader in the in that community and hyper skilled and now we're coming back to him and he's kind of a broken man and he's broken because of you know years of monotonous hiding and they need to convey that Uh in in like the first half episode they don't want us to have to watch him live a monotonous bored life for episode after episode because that becomes boring for us they need to convey that quickly and one of the ways they convey it visually is not only by repeating the same kinds of scenes over Mm -hmm. and over again but they actually repeat the same shots over and over again kind of beat by beat so the shot is the same the editing is the same the pace is the same so this part where he's uh, you know, he's part of the crew that's butchering meat from that sand whale, and he bundles the slice of meat yeah. that he that he steals every day. He rides home on the barge. He yeah. feeds that camel like uh, Eopi, I think it's called. Yeah. Those moments are repeated, shot for shot, exactly, and that oh. visually drives home the repetitive nature of his existence. And the describer very wisely and clearly it worked. It like you you picked up on this. Yeah, they repeat the same phrases exactly so that description users get that same sense of repetition uh, yes, yes 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 so that it's a comparable experience so uh, brilliant that they did it and i love that you picked up on it well and and his sandy colored hair she refers to the descri- well the narrator the the writer used it in the description several times too and when you like reiterate in the description it was done but you did too that everything on the planet just looks the same sandy color and so it it highlights how he is trying to blend in like even his hair looks the same color as everything so the repetition worked worked there too totally were there other aspects of world building or characters that the describer just didn't have time for oh yeah there are i mean a couple another kind of cinematography uh, element that I thought was beautiful to establish uh, character and menace. Like Riva is a really wonderful menacing character, mm-hmm. and they got to make her. They have to make this character a match for Obi Wan 
right away. Right. Uh, and one of the ways they make her menacing, there's a great scene. Um, uh, Reva is searching for Obi-Wan in this cargo port. Um, it's this warehouse space that, that he's hiding out in. Really dark, row after row of crates and cargo. And Reva is stalking him, slowly making her way down these aisles created by these rows of crates. And she has with her an Inquisitor's lightsaber. It's just a different design. It's not a straight hilt. Um, th- it has uh, the shape of an uppercase D um, with the hand inside that uppercase D, and it's got mm-hmm. a red blade on it. And so as Reva is stalking through the warehouse, the red glow of her humming lightsaber blade lights her way. And because she keeps this blade at waist height, kind of either at her side or pointed in front of her, it casts an eerie red glow on her face, kind of like at a campfire when <laughs> mm. a person holds a flashlight under their chin. That <laughs> underlighting, like coming up the face, is really effective. It's super menacing. And that glow of that red lightsaber is Again, most of the lighting in that scene comes from this red glow. Super effective makes her, I mean, her performance is great. She's got a very menacing tone and yeah. a very menacing physical presence. Yeah. Assisted by great, um, great design, great lighting design, great cinematography. Sometimes you see the glow of the lightsaber um, making its way down the rows of crates. You don't even see her. You just see the glow mm-hmm. of the lightsaber. Super effective. Yeah. So how about smaller scale details? Are there cameos or little things that in the in crowd would have would have got if there was time for describing them? Yeah, and a lot of those details, and I, I did check to see if there's any way. They're so small. They're so tiny. Um, in some cases, there's no way that the describers got time. They're trying to set a whole scene, and there's some character in the background. It's virtually impossible to get them in. So uh, there's a, there's a, on Alderaan, there's an official a political reception. Um, and at that reception, both C-3PO and R2-D2 are there in the background. Mm-hmm. So you don't, I think C-3PO might have been mentioned, but not R2-D2, who's like, you know, serving drinks or, or dirts yeah. or something like that. Yeah, yeah. They're just in the background. Um, there's one you might have mentioned or might have picked up on uh, this, this panhandling clone trooper that Obi-Wan gives credits to. This isn't the second episode actually this um this clone trooper has a recognizable voice and in fact the description identifies him as a familiar looking clone which i really liked because it lets the audience know that this familiar voice does belong Ah. to a familiar face but it doesn't take away the fun of the discovery Ah. and i will confirm here that yes indeed that was uh, tamara morrison the actor who plays boba fett and Django Fett and kind of, you know, theoretically all of the clone troopers. And it's him buried behind this this really scruffy beard and this, you know, the, the wild hair in this grimy, grimy clone clone troopers uniform. And he's he's been reduced to, you know, begging for credits on the street. Mm-hmm. And so I th- they did a great job of putting that character in visually in a way yeah, that yeah. an audience member would be like, oh, I totally recognize that. And the mm-hmm. voice is super familiar. He's got mm-hmm. a very, uh, you know, very recognizable voice. And the describer did a great job kind of letting people know um, that, that 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 was uh, uh, something to, to consider, but I'm not going to tell you exactly what it is. Let, let the discovery be, be up to you. Um, there are a few other nice, very, like the parallels, the visual parallels, because this is 
uh, a prequel of sorts, right? This story mm-hmm. takes place in the middle of the greater Star Wars story that we already know. They did a very nice job visually kind of drawing parallels from one Star Wars story to another. So these pod racer goggles is a moment. So at the early in the in the episode, uh, in the first episode, uh, Obi-Wan goes to see the, the moisture farm that mm-hmm. young Luke Skywalker is living at with um um with his uncle uh, uncle Owen. Owen, thank you. Gosh, oh God, how can I not remember Uncle Owen? <laughs> um, and so uh, Obi-Wan goes to check in and from the distance he hides in the rocks and he and he you know, picks up these uh, binoculars and he and he watches um, uh, young Luke. And young Luke puts on these pod racer goggles and pretends to be flying a pod racer or piloting a pod racer, which of course is exactly what his father, Anakin, did as a little kid, put on these pod racer goggles and race a pod, a pod, a uh. pod racer. And just a little visual moment that, again, like it's, it's, you don't, you don't have to be watching it to pick up on that parallel, but visually these, the goggles, which are these kind of steampunk round goggles that, uh, uh, you know, they get slipped on. It's a nice visual link between the two, the two stories. Another one where Ewan McGregor has this, like this wonderful pensive gesture where he gently brushes or tugs or twists the hair of his beard at the side of his chin. And this is a gesture pulled directly from Alec Guinness, who played Obi-Wan Kenobi in the Mm. very first Star Wars film. Just a little brilliant acting gesture that he's like, well, if I'm going to continue, if I'm going to grow into Alec Guinness, I need to start picking up on these mannerisms now. That's a brilliant little, little, you know, acting detail. And then when Obi-Wan finds young Leia in episode two. He he goes after young Leia's been kidnapped and he goes after and finds her. And the moment he finds her, you know, she's only 10 years old. She's a very short little kid. And so to 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 kind of calm her and reassure her that he's a good guy rescuing her, he leans forward to talk to her and calm her. And his posture mirrors exactly the posture of Carrie Fisher's Leia in the hologram that she will later Ah! send to Alec Guinness's Obi-Wan Kenobi when she asks for his help in the first Star Wars. The same posture. It's very similar kind of blue lighting. They're both wearing these kind of cloaked costumes that have (laughs) hanging sleeves. The posture's the same. The lighting's the same. The, The cloaked, the costume's very, very similar lovely, lovely little parallels that are being drawn. And not every viewer is gonna gonna watch that and, and remember. But there's the, you know, if you're either a hardcore fan or just somewhere in the back of your mind, like, oh, mm-hmm. I think that's familiar. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You're great at putting those things in. What a challenge for a describer. And I it makes me wonder if the one person who wrote the description was steeped in Star Wars lore or just, you know, it was a job for them. But yeah, what a what a responsibility because it's so storied and so mythologized. It's such a big world. We love making this podcast. If you love hearing it, perhaps you'll consider supporting its creation and development by becoming a patron. We've set up a Patreon page to help cover the costs of putting the show together. You can contribute as a listener or as a sponsor to help ensure that accessible and entertaining journalism continues to reach our community. Visit 
patreon.com slash talk description to me. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash talk description to me. Have feedback or suggestions of what you'd like to hear about? Here's how to get in touch with us. Our email address is talkdescriptiontome at gmail.com. Our Facebook page is called Talk Description to Me. Our website is talkdescriptiontome.com. And you can follow us on Twitter at talkdescription.com.